Today's guest is one of my favorite writers about sovereign debt, uh, Siobhan Morton. Uh, many of you who follow the sovereign markets will be familiar with uh, Siobhan in part because she is one of the people that members of the financial press turn to regularly when they are having to write about uh, difficult topics in the sovereign world, but also because, especially over the past seven or eight months, her newsletters uh, have become the most popular uh, bootleg circulating material that there is. And uh, I think it's because we who try to learn about this market um, uh, trust her. So we're, we're, we're very excited that, that she's here. So uh, thank you, Siobhan. Um, but I, I want to start with- Thanks, Mark. I, I want to start with asking you what role you play. I, um, I know you as uh, someone who is a friend who's always willing to help me when I don't understand something about the markets. And I, I also know that officially, uh, I think you're an analyst, um, specifically a sell-side analyst, but I'm not completely sure about what that means and what's the difference between a sell-side and a buy-side analyst and uh, is and uh, why uh, you know so much and why do people uh, read you? Well, well, thank you for that wonderful introduction, me too. Um, so yeah, I am a, as you say, a sell-side analyst. I'm a desk analyst which means that I work on the trading sales desk. Our focus um, is US dollar bonds and it's emerging markets, but my focus specifically is Latin America. So my role is to provide guidance to buy side investors and, and investors like mutual funds, insurance companies, et cetera, hedge funds, in, in their investments in Latin America and sovereign countries who issue dollar bonds. So I try to determine, is this country with their policy framework improving or deteriorating? And how does that impact their willingness and ability to pay these obligations in the future? So um, as I said earlier, I work, for, I work for an investment bank, Amherst Pierpont. I've been in the industry for 28 years. So I've seen every cycle of crisis basically from the beginning since 1992. As you know, our podcast is sort of inspired by the awful situation we find ourselves in with having to teach our students on Zoom and not being able to bring in guests to explicate how the markets work and how they interact with our specialty, which is uh, legal analysis of sovereign contracts. Now, in your newsletters, you have often talked about contract terms and uh, legal issues with a remarkably high degree of sophistication. And one of the questions I have always wondered about is, why are the people who read you, who are, you know, at places like uh, Goldman Sachs or Elliott Associates, uh, 
you know, the, these very fancy funds, why are they reading Siobhan on what kinds of uh, paripasu clauses or collective action clauses are in El Salvador's debt? I, don't, I mean, these guys uh, are made of money. They, they have their own lawyers on speed dial, presumably. It, it, so I'm just trying to understand, you know, it, 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 you're an economist, right? Like when I was in econ grad school, not very successfully, uh, we were all taught that markets are efficient and all publicly available information is just incorporated in the price. And this is particularly true with sophisticated traders. Yet it seems like in the real world that they have no clue what their contract terms are. And uh, at the last minute when things go belly up, they're reading your newsletter to find out what's in their contracts. A am I caricaturing uh, how the markets actually work? Well, yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I tend to specialize. So when you look at a typical portfolio manager at a mutual fund, that portfolio manager may be covering 30 different countries. So the value that I provide is I'm going to focus on four or five. And where I can add the most value are not on countries that are stable to improving investment grade cut credits like uh, Chile or Panama or Peru, where they've, they've effectively shifted their funding markets to their own local markets. So principally, the countries that I focus on are stressed and distressed credits. So the situation is highly fluid. There tends to be patterns of this crisis, the chronology of a crisis. When you look at, say, a U.S. economist, they're their, his or her primary function is going to be data watch. So they're looking at the monthly data that comes out and they're assessing the data that comes out and, and that affects kind of the health of the economy and the stock markets, et cetera. So my focus is more crisis watch. And I'm looking at what are the leaders saying? What, what's the menu of options? What are they gonna do? Um, what are their priorities? What are the political constraints? And there's a huge amount of information and I have to take and distill that information and trying to understand what it means for debt repayment capacity. So it's taken me many cycles of following different crises. Some of these crises follow the same patterns, some are different. If you go through, like take countries like Ecuador and Argentina, they're serial defaulters. So I can look at patterns of what was the last default? Are they trying to reinvent themselves? How is the population shifting? Are they, are they free market? Is, is it a free market economy? Is it a closed economy? And you, you need a lot of experience to be able to assess everything that's happening. And I can take my almost three decades of experience in these countries being very specialized and understanding how these countries are evolving. I think the problem is when you try to look at too much, you, you, you tend to have much more of a shallow focus. And what I do is I, I, I purposely am deep dive. I'm committed to every single information flow through social media. Um, is a country democratic? Is it autocratic? Then how do you get the information? So it's, it's, a, it's a very complex process that I think over time, only then can you understand and, and as, I, as I said earlier, be closer to the truth and, and closer to a trade. So I, um, 
and a lot of it is logic. I think of a lot, a lot of it is logic. It's hard work and logic. So I, I think the, it's interesting that you use the term crisis watch and it makes me, um, it makes me think that in the context of a current or impending crisis uh, to, to tie it into the question of um, legal information about a country's debt stock. That seems to be the time when investors really develop a, a, an interest in the legal structure of a country's debt. And, and certainly I can understand how when you're on crisis watch, that would be a, a one of the important considerations you'd focus on. I'm wondering though, like my sense as an outsider is that for the investor community, legal considerations are kind of irrelevant when they're not on crisis watch. And I'm, I'm wondering if, if, first of all, if, if that's sort of consistent with your sense of the demand for information that, that you know, when a country is doing well, people are really not especially interested in these things. Um, and, and assuming that's kind of consistent with your experience, why do you, why do you think that is? Siobhan, yeah. if I could add to sure. Mark's question, because I, this this connects to some of the uh, recent newsletters of yours that I may have gotten through bootleg sources, sorry. Um, but uh, you've written recently about sort of the local law, foreign law distinction in terms of the the trades and what is likely to go belly up. And, you know, as as lawyers, to us, uh, th there's a huge difference in terms of risk between uh, a Uruguayan local instrument and uh, a foreign instrument, and not just currency risk, uh, as we saw in Greece in 2012. But my impression is that most of the time in investors trade these really kind of as being roughly the same. And then when the country goes belly up, they realize, oh shit, they, the local stuff is just like, you know, could go down to zero now. Yeah, so you're absolutely right in that um, in moments of stress or distress, the legal contracts are much more relevant because you need to know what your legal recourse is. If there's a higher probability of default, you need to know in what jurisdiction can you, what, can you seek recourse? What, what, um, what strength do you have in those in those particular contracts and, and those indentures? And what's interesting, I know we had spoken in the past about Venezuela, and, and that's a whole different, un unfortunately, failed state at the moment. But there was a lot of focus on the different the differentiation between the um, the bonds at that moment of default. And we've seen that recently in Argentina. Argentina, which unfortunately is kind of the case study for default, and it always sets new legal precedent. But when they, um, and I don't mean to, to focus too much on, on Argentina, but I think it's a really relevant uh, live today case study that you can reference. There was two different indentures in terms of the bond stock that were issued. So there was a 2005 indenture and the 2016. And these indentures and the different legal contracts became extremely important. And if you were a discount bond holder with a stronger 2005 indenture, 
with stronger CACs, collective action clauses, different definitions of pari passu, et cetera, you were paid higher in terms of recovery value. So I was, I was thinking about that today, and then I was looking at Argentina debt prices because, again, we're pricing in, even after this debt restructuring that closed in September, we are pricing in a high probability of default. And, and I said, hmm, do these bonds start to differentiate now between the different legal contracts? And the discount bonds, which were ex exchanged into the 2038, they are trading at a higher cash price, but the par bonds were exchanged into the 2041 and they do not. So part of the cash price is obviously going to be a reflection of the um, components and, and the determinants of the cash flow of the bond itself. But, but I do think that Argentina was the first case study I saw where you were paid a higher recovery value for the discount bond. And I think what also played a part was who were the holders of the discount bond. And it was, I think, probably held by a much more active investor versus say that the standard real, men, real money investor who's more predisposed to negotiate than litigate. So it was um, the, these contracts and, and, these, and these, these bond indentures become increasingly relevant with a direct correlation when there's a higher probability of default. And, and we've seen it uh, in, with Argentina where there was a clear different, like you, the, the bondholders, this was also interesting with Argentina and I don't mean to go off on a tangent, but the bondholders were a much stronger group and they had strength in, in numbers and having a majority in one group that was close to the threshold for the collective action clause made bondholders, I think a formidable counterparty in, in enforcing the debtor country to negotiate. And, and they knew very well their contracts and their legal rights, and that was an active part of the discussion. So with the, again, not wanting to get too much in the weeds with Argentina, but it, it, as you say, it gives us so many examples that it's hard to, hard to stay it's away from. So everybody was thinking about, or, or at least everybody in my narrow corner of the world was thinking about the difference in CACs across the, the various Argentine bonds. And so I imagine that sometimes it's relatively easy to identify which legal characteristics are the relevant ones. But um, another lesson from Argentina, I guess, uh, from its the litigation after its 2001 default is that sometimes things wind up surprising you a little bit. Maybe a, a difference in the language of a pari passu clause, for instance, might turn out to be more important than people thought. How, um, how clear is it to you when you do turn your focus to the different legal characteristics of a country's debt stock. How clear is it to you what matters and, and what isn't? And where do you take your cues from? Yeah, that's a tough question because I'm a credit analyst, not a legal analyst, so it's not my area of expertise. But when you're in this industry, you have to you have to wear different hats. So if if it's COVID, then we all become epidemiologists. If it's you know, a U.S. elections, then we're all U.S. political analysts, and we all have to wear our different hats. So when it gets close to a default, 
it's very unnerving for me because I know, although I have a lot of experience and, and I try to understand as much as the legal framework and risks that I can, it is not my expertise. So what I end up doing is you end up being, it's a fact-finding process together. You talk to clients, you uh, try to understand what they're, you know, and then you have to, you have to read the documentation. You know, there's, uh, you know, as you said, Mark, sometimes you can be caught off guard with something that you didn't think was relevant that becomes relevant. Part of that is just doing the hard work of reading through the documents and, you know, trying to understand, did we know Judge Grisey was going to focus on the pari passu language? No, <laughs> I, mean, I don't think anyone saw that coming. That was almost grasping for straws to try to force his um, his judgment with as he characterized Argentina a recalcitrant debtor. But I think it's it's a process of um, collaboration between I would say myself and my client base and those that are active, those that have legal analysts, those that are more uh, legally based investors, or I don't want to say activist investors, whatever 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 term works, but but those investors that would take legal action are probably the experts and, and there's a lot of collaboration and trying to understand. But for me, it's part of what I do, but it's hard to ever be the expert in that space because I'm not the legal analyst. And I, but have, have I gone to courts um, and actually been in the audience and, and listening to uh, judgments, yeah. I mean, sometimes you've had to show up, right? You're there with everybody else, and you want to be first to understand how this evolves. But, but with law too, it's and again, I'm not the expert, but it's it, it's kind of evolutionary, right? Each new thing is different. So, how can you possibly predict that other than just being in the flow of information and constantly trying to understand how it evolves? But it's it, it's very difficult to predict if if Argentina or each new defaulter is setting new case precedent or if there's new some new twist. But I do think that understanding collective action clauses is the first most important place to start. And that's the new legal infrastructure that's really dominant and decisive as to determining recovery value. So I would, I would, you know, there's probably other other pieces that have become more relevant, but I would say that the collective action clause infrastructure has really set the new precedent in terms of legal rights and 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 evolving how debt restructurings um, and enforcing. I, I would say almost a a friendlier solution because you need majority and and preventing um, that holdout risk, which was unfortunately the legacy of of the pre-CAC um, indentures before 2004 or 2002, I think. So I would say I would say CACs are probably the most dominant feature and relevant feature to focus and understand. Well, it's interesting to, to hear that, that description, um, in part because just to, to link this really briefly to what we try to teach our students, the, you, you um, point out, I think, the kind of both the collaborative nature of figuring out what matters, but also the um, just the importance of getting in under the hood and reading documents carefully. And it's, um, it's one of the things I think uh, that takes a while for 
future lawyers to really recognize is that the legal training is important, but in some ways not even necessary for people who are willing to really really um, dig their way into the documents and, and ferret out the answers. Because I have, I for one, have always been sort of humbled by the quality of legal information I, I see um, in, in your reports when they make their way across my desk. But you, you, you said two C words, one was CAC, but another one um, is the magic word, because I think it might lead us into the next half of our, our show, um, which is COVID. And maybe as a, as a way of framing the second half, I can, I can squeeze in one more question before our break. And, and the question is this, um, is your job harder or easier these days because of the pandemic? I mean, you have these sort of powerful forces that are um, sort of global, in nature, the, the pandemic being the main one, but but also the have cheap credit conditions that central bank interventions have have um, fostered. So I'm wondering whether those are kind of the dominant factors in evaluating credit trends these days, or whether kind of country specific fundamentals. Um, do they still matter? Do they matter as much? Have they become less important? Like, what is the impact of of COVID and all this central bank liquidity on the the um, the work that you do? So those are, I think, really important questions. In terms of the COVID shock, as an analyst, it was so much harder because it's very rare that I would have a synchronized crisis across an entire region or globe. So you have to understand how it impacts um, all of these countries and, and what their prescriptions and their policy responses and what their menu of options are. So when you talk about global liquidity, I think that, was, that is very relevant for those that can access funding markets. So when you have cheap credit, if you're an investment grade country, or even a double B, and even in this later stages, we had issuance, debt issuance from El Salvador, which is single B, but you can typically access credit more easily. And that's important because with the shock from COVID, and I don't want to get too much in the weeds here, but it, it hits these countries through several different ways. From If you look at their budgets, which is important in terms of governability and allocating you know, scarce resources, if, if there's a shock to their economy, they're gonna collect less taxes. And in a country like Ecuador, their budget was hit four times because they were planning to do some asset monetization sales, which is basically de facto concessions. And the market was kind of closed to them. And then they got less oil revenues and less taxes. And then you have to do more targeted spending for the population that are at risk to COVID. And that requires higher social spending. So they had a budget that was hit on four different fronts. And um, so what do you need to do? You need to access credit. So for countries that can access the bond markets that have stable fundamentals, we had everyone coming out, everyone, you know, everyone you could think of came to the markets, to the dollar bond markets, Panama aggressively, everyone came because you have fewer revenues, you need more spending. And so you it's a budget, it's a liquidity problem for you. You have a big budget problem. So, so we had, because of thankfully of global liquidity appetite for higher yield from, uh, from emerging markets, but from stronger countries, 
there was clearly that that offered a way to access liquidity. However, if you're a single B credit um, and, and you have with the shock of COVID, it could hit you at such a vulnerable stage that you may not be able to access credit. So for those countries that didn't go to the bond market to source, you know, cheap, easy money, um, they went to multilaterals. So I think there was over, I'm going to say a hundred countries. Can you believe that? A hundred countries went to the IMF to tap the rapid financing instrument, which was sort of a, an emergency, some emergency funding, and you got 100% of your quota. So it was significant. So the IMF was an amazing source of liquidity provider for countries that couldn't access the bond markets, that couldn't take advantage of this global liquidity. So that was an important um, that that was an important source of liquidity for all of the single B credits and below. And um, the, the the problem though is, and I don't want to go. I think we can talk more about this and 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 other questions, but tapping liquidity is important, but you're, you're increasing your stock of debt, right? When you're issuing bonds, mm-hmm. when you're borrowing from the IMF, when you're borrowing from the World Bank, when you're borrowing from multilaterals, you're, you're increasing your stock of debt. And the problem with COVID is how long will it take for these economies to recover? And what will your debt burden look like when you fully recovered? And is that sustainable? So that's kind of the phase two in terms of the the COVID uh, assessment. Well, and it's also, uh, it will be a useful phase two when we come back from our break, when hopefully we can get you to talk in a little bit more detail about some of the countries that you've been following. All right, we are back. And now in the second half, we're going to use the opportunity of having Siobhan here with us to ask about both specific countries and the future that COVID is going to produce for us. I, I realize that is a tall order, but we are, we're going to ask. Now, my first question is about Argentina and Ecuador, even though we don't want to spend too much time talking about them, and we've already spent a lot of time talking about them in our podcast series. But I have a question that I think Siobhan is the perfect person to answer, which is, do we have a problem in terms of our restructurings in that countries ask for too little relief? And the reason I ask that question is my impression of both the Ecuador and Argentine restructurings is that the estimation of how much relief these countries needed was made before the onset of COVID because they were, they were in crisis before. And then as COVID hit, they didn't really adjust the relief upwards. If anything, they paid the creditors more than they thought they could afford in the non-COVID world and maybe uh, that's why we're seeing the Argentine bonds in the doldrums again, because how the hell were, were they going to deal with COVID expenses without okay. having anticipated that? Okay, so you bring up 
a super relevant and important topic, um, also somewhat controversial. With RG and Ecuador, the idea was to quickly restructure your debt so that you could move on and focus on the domestic policy agenda to stabilize your economy and grow. So that was the idea. So with strong creditor committees that had majority participation, the idea was to agree about burden sharing. So with both restructurings, the, the burden sharing or the, or the relief that bondholders provided was on coupon payments and deferring maturities. So there was not much of any forgiveness of the stock of debt. What bondholders and the sovereigns agreed to was sort of an extended standstill of payments saying, you know what, with this COVID shock, it's, it's, it's intense, it's, it will, it's going to last a few years. Why don't we provide you three to four years of relief? So very low, if any, coupon payments and no amortizations. We'll just push it off into the future. Now you can say, is that enough? Was it not enough? Well, I think the more question is, who has the burden of adjustment? Should the burden be only on bondholders to forgive debt? Or should these countries that had weak policy management and countries that were commodity countries that suffered after the commodity shock in 2014, but never adjusted the size of their state and their budgets lower, because we no longer have the oil windfall or the commodity windfall. China's not growing at double digits, right? I mean, this has happened, this has been five, six years now since the shock, and it's a permanent shock. So the problem was there was never an adjustment to that shock of many years ago. So then you could say, well, maybe all the burden shifts to bondholders. They should forgive all the debt, and these countries should just continue to run at you know high high deficits right so i think that's really you know it's a really a controversial question about burden sharing and policy adjustment so with argentina it's more complex because they continue to spend and they're not borrowing dollars to spend they're they're printing pesos and that becomes inflationary and demand for dollars becomes insatiable, and all of a sudden, boom, we're in a balance of payments crisis in Argentina. In Ecuador, it's different. In Ecuador, they, um, they have, I would say, credible policy management under President Moreno, but he's out of office in May next year. He's not lasting, right? So Ecuador was interesting, and I don't want to talk too much about Ecuador, but it's, it's quite unique. And Ecuador is labeled a serial defaulter, right? Maybe maybe a few less defaults than, than Argentina. I don't know the exact number. I think Argentina's at nine. But with Ecuador, they did a consent solicitation. Nine, I think it was like 98% of bondholders agreed to, to um, a, a payment standstill. And then they quickly negotiated with huge participation, huge participation. Uh, it was in the 90s as well. And they were able to quickly reach an agreement and then as part of conditionality for settlement, they agreed with an IMF program and the IMF gave them an extended fund facility with exceptional access. 
which is unheard of through an election cycle that they would provide them with an enormous amount of money up front to prevent this country that's a dollarized economy to be even in a worse political and, and social crisis. So we have elections next year, uh, February, and probably runoff vote in April. So Ecuador is trading at high yields post restructuring at 10% yield. So you don't have that relief of, oh, you know, yields normalize and we, we're exiting crisis. Well, no, because we're still trading at high yields in Ecuador because we don't know who the next policy managers are going to be and whether they will commit to what is still a solvency problem in, in Ecuador. They are running a, a significant structural fiscal deficit and their debt stock, especially post COVID is now higher at unmanageable levels and they need to commit to a, a, a primary, a significantly high primary surplus to stabilize their debt stock. So that is still, we need to see who the next policy manager is to see if there's commitment for that, for that debt uh, sustainability and fiscal discipline. But um, with Argentina, we don't, have an, we don't have the same context of who are the managers. We just have a different philosophy and a different ideology where it, um, they, have, they have a debt problem and, and it's not just Eurobond debt, right? In Argentina, they have 43 billion of multilateral of IMF loans that they have to repay. They have a lot of local law dollar bonds. So their stock of debt in Argentina is over of dollar bonds is over 150 billion of future payments. And right now their reserves, their liquid reserves are zero. So your stock of assets is zero, your future liabilities are 150, and they need to shift the balance of payments to surplus so they can start accumulating dollars. So reserves start to increase. So they have a future stock to, to make these payments and they can't because it's supply and demand. They keep, they keep pumping pesos into the system to finance, um, to finance the deficit and finance spending. And it's backfiring. So can you, this is, um, if I can sneak one more question in about Argentina, um, because the, the, the massive pile of money owed to the IMF, I think, um, is sort of the, the elephant in the room. Normally, I think uh, creditors would be looking to the IMF as a kind of the mechanism for instituting some kind of policy change and policy continuity. And I'm just wondering what you think of the dynamic uh, in these current discussions between the fund and Argentina. Who has who over a barrel there? Is, is Argentina desperately need the fund or does the fund have so much money at stake that um, its hands are to some extent tied behind its back here? So... IMF in Argentina, um, you know, it's that typical expression. It's the bank's problem if you if you owe them a lot of money. I forget the exact expression. Mm -hmm. Kind of applies here, but they will find a way to just they'll find a political compromise to just defer those payments and pay them in the future. Right? Um, there's no <laughs> uh, the IMF is a senior creditor. And there's no potential whatsoever of any debt forgiveness, but I think they will provide liquidity relief and find a way to defer those payments. But that's not really the problem. The problem is in Argentina that we have an economic policy framework that doesn't work, that doesn't, that doesn't produce stable growth and inflation. 
And the IMF cannot impose an economic agenda on any country. Um, and so it, it is Argentina that needs to determine their economic agenda and what will provide the benefit of, of low growth and, um, I mean, sorry, the opposite, low inflation. And <laughs> We're talking <laughs> about Italy for a second. Well, actually, we do, we, do need lower, we do need lower inflation, but we certainly don't need lower growth. But, but, but that's really up to the policymakers and the politicians to find that, that combination that best works. And so the IMF does not have any leverage on the, on the policies. I, I, I think they, they have, I think they could provide technical advice if requested. And certainly they want to find a, a compromise that, that can deliver macro stability. If you look at, um, the Western Hemisphere, MD uh, Warner, he had some comments yesterday and the bondholders actually issued a statement too. You would have thought that the creditor book bondholder group would have dissolved, but no, they, uh, they issued a statement as well. And they say, for you to, to, to pay creditors in the future, you need to determine a, a reasonable and sustainable economic program. And that's critical. So they said, we did our job, we provided relief and we, we provided a significant relief over the next couple of years, almost zero, like the average coupon in Argentina is 2% for a country that's defaulted nine times, right? I mean, that's amazing um, cash flow relief, permanent cash flow relief on coupon payments and, and a lot of upfront relief because these coupons step up. And they said, listen, you need to provide a policy framework, framework that delivers um, future debt repayment and sustainable growth and low inflation. And so far, that's not the case. So I don't know how much influence the, the IMF can have. The first payment to the IMF is not until September 2021. And I, I'm reminded of how Minister Guzman said, oh, we're going to we'll restructure the debt in March. They restructured it in September. So I, it's hard to, there's no track record here of, of honoring aggressive timeframes and, and targets for creditor restructuring. So I assume that the IMF negotiations will delay. And it's difficult for the IMF because how are you supposed to forecast medium-term repayment? What exchange rate are you going to use? The, the, the blue chip FX rate has been in like a free fall except for the past couple of days for some temporary relief. But it's, it's, it's a crisis of confidence on the currency. How do you, how do you design a, a, a framework for repayment to the IMF in the middle of a crisis of confidence? So I think the IMF will retreat to the sidelines and then it's really a decision for President Fernandez. Uh, is he gonna stay part of the coalition with Kirchnerismo with you know, public consumption growth model and, and market interventionism? Uh, if that's not working, he may have to shift course and find a more moderate coalition with moderate parents and a turnover of the economic team that can provide a positive shock to to the markets and to and stabilize the currency. So I, I think the IMF is a bit of a bit on the sidelines here, and no urgency because the first payment isn't until September of next year. Oh, September of next year feels awfully close and with a lot of COVID pain in between. Ar Argentina, from a 
from a researcher's point of view seems to be the gift that keeps on giving, except that it's so depressing. Um, but so just one point about that truly remarkable uh, set of events that you described. I mean, I've never seen anything like that creditor's letter. And in fact, when I started reading it, I thought that what was going to follow was them saying, look, we gave you debt relief in exchange for your promise to behave better. And you have reneged on that promise. So we want to unwind the debt relief that we gave you. And I, I'm teaching the modification doctrine in contract law this week. And that was the, so that, that was on my mind, but how, you know, under pressure you give people relief and then, then they renege on the relief that they promised you. And then you say, yeah, we want to unwind. But uh, I, I wanted to um, take, take us away from Argentina, uh, even though it is so interesting and ask you the bigger picture question that you probably have a better sense than almost anybody of where we are likely to see the next defaults. I mean, if we think, you know, that we're not really rounding the corner and a vaccine's not in the offing, and this is going to last yeah. to a significant portion of 2021, then, I mean, the real economies in much of Latin America and I, I, I only say Latin America because I know that's your uh, specialization, Th those real economies are tanking. And so what if you can borrow if the real economy is tanking? My simplistic understanding is that all you end up with is a larger debt stock. Yeah, so I, th I think the problem with the COVID shock is it's a lasting shock. If it's gonna take two to three years to recover, how much damage do you do to your debt ratios in the interim? So if you have a higher debt stock, then it's going to require future fiscal austerity and to, to, to be able to honor that debt stock in the future. So, so it is, I think, a very difficult dynamic. So there's four countries that I look at. Argentina, Ecuador, that are, that are in the risk category when we talk about default risk. So we have Argentina, Ecuador, Costa Rica, El Salvador. So Argentina and Ecuador, they've already restructured. And so even though Argentina bond prices are trading at 33 cents, keep in mind that they still have four years to turn it around. So there's, there's if President Fernandez wakes up tomorrow and says, new team, new coalition, fiscal anchor, you know, we could resolve, it would be a positive shock to the currency, they could start accumulating reserves, and then you know, they could get to a point where, you know, repayment risk is, is not such a concern um, and get back on track. So I think the, the, the bottom line is countries like RG and Ecuador that have liquidity relief, they have time. They have time, right? Um, Ecuador, if you have stable management next year and they commit to fiscal discipline and um, the focus there will be on a controversial VAT hike, then they could be on track to stabilize. They could be on track to double B credit if they get VAT through. I don't want to simplify it, but if you if you hike VAT from um, what is it, twelve to fifteen percent, you could maybe be on track to become a double B credit. I mean, Ecuador could reinvent itself. And also keep in mind, Ecuador didn't default technically. That's important. 
They respected their contracts. They did not default and bondholders will remember that and reward it. But we still need to need to get on track in terms of fiscal discipline. So they have a couple of years and we'll know soon enough um, after the elections in, in, in Ecuador and in Argentina, we'll know, I, I honestly don't think they can last many months in the in the current unsustainable equilibrium. Um, we'll we'll know pretty soon how how we evolve and, and hopefully we we swing towards moderation and, and centrist policies and and hopefully they can come back from the brink. Um, but the the point is we have a couple of years to figure those those countries out given the relief that they've secured. Um, now Costa Rica and El Salvador this is a problem, right? Because you've got debt stocks of 70% in CoStar, uh, over 90% of GDP in, in El Salvador. And what I'm looking at in these countries is, are the economies recovering, right? Because the sooner they recover, the sooner we have higher taxes, and then we can have political commitment to maybe adjust a bit on the fiscal side. But if it takes them a couple years to 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 have the economy recover, then during those years, you know, you're going to borrow more, and it could be a tipping point where debt is no longer sustainable. So that I think it's difficult because for these countries, you know, they they're all following like countercyclical fiscal stimulus, right? That's that's the response, right? Because you don't want to you want to minimize the shock to your population um, and and the downside risk to growth, but that's going to add to your debt burden. And if you continue to spend, then the debt burden goes higher and higher, and then it becomes a moving target for what that equilibrium fiscal situation requires to reduce that debt stock. It takes more and more fiscal adjustment the longer you wait. So. I, I closely follow economic activity. Now, every default is unique and default risk is unique in each of these countries. Now, in Costa Rica, a lot of their debt is domestic. You know, they have, I think, 5.5 billion in euro bonds outstanding. I think El Salvador is 7 billion. You know, so they, they, they barely have any euro bonds outstanding. So a default in their external debt is not the obvious policy prescription. It wouldn't give them enough relief um, their debt burden is mostly a, a local debt burden. So um, what we're waiting for in Costa Rica is, and also in El Salvador, is their commitment for a formal IMF program. And guess what? In Costa Rica, there's protests. You know, there's violent protests and, and um, uh, roadblocks and and the population, when, when their econ economy is flatlined, we've been like if you look at economic activity indicators in Costa Rica, it's been basically flatlining the past couple of months. So you can understand that there's no tolerance amongst the population to speak with the IMF and agree to all of these tax hikes that the government proposed and spending cuts. It the, the timing couldn't be more inopportune. So Costa Rica is at a difficult point because if the markets don't think that they have a plan for debt sustainability, if there's no consensus for an IMF program, at, at some point, the domestic markets, which is their market to fund themselves, it's a primary source of funding, um, the domestic markets may say, well, should I be buying these treasury notes and treasury bonds if 
the government is unable to pay them in the future. So that's really kind of the debate in, in Costa Rica. In, in El Salvador, there has been no open discussion about the IMF. Apparently, I'm hearing that there is frequent dialogue with the IMF, maybe even on a weekly basis, but the IMF relationship can't be defined until after the midterm elections on February 28th, the end of February. So once we have the midterm elections, which is basically the turnover of the unicameral legislature, then the president will probably have a stronger mandate to decide what he's going to do about the IMF. And if, if and the other interesting thing about El Salvador is it's completely dollarized. So you can't spend what you can't borrow abroad. And if you wanna access credit offshore, they're gonna ask for rational policies. So you have dollarization in, in itself, some has this informal checks and balances for politicians. So I think after, after February, the pressure is going to increase for El Salvador to make a formal request for an IMF program. And then we're into the second phase of execution risk. How difficult and ambitious are these targets? Are they reasonable? Um, can the population um, tolerate fiscal austerity if the economy hasn't fully recovered? And that's gonna be the ongoing debate over the next year or two for, for all of these countries. Can they, and can they finance themselves in the interim? Because if you're not committed to debt sustainability, the markets may stop funding you. And that's when liquidity risk becomes solvency risk. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time today, Siobhan. Um, I, listening to your, your last responses, it strikes me, um, and maybe I can squeeze one more brief question in before we close, but um, I'm struck by how sort of nuanced and particularized your discussion of each of these countries has been when, um, and to, to some extent, this is unavoidable since so many of them still need uh, ongoing capital markets financing. But for poorer countries, so much of the discussion has been over giving a uniform kind of off the rack um, short-term debt relief. This is in the form of the G20's debt service suspension initiative, which has obviously been partial and incomplete because it doesn't cover private sector or even all official debt. Um, and there's no analog for emerging markets. But I'm wondering if maybe you have thoughts on whether sort of in the world that we are headed into in the next two or three years, um, something like that will inevitably come to pass in the sense that we will have a widespread need to, to restructure or at least reschedule some of these debts. I am, your last answer kind of implied to me that the answer is maybe no, that there's, we need to take each country um, uh, as a unique instance, but I'm, I'm wondering what you think the odds are that things are just gonna be so bad all around that we will essentially be dealing with every one of the countries that you cover yeah. having no choice but to go to investors and, and ask for relief. So I think um, I welcome the discussion about the DSSI because I think it's, it's an important to introduce into the debate about payment standstill. And 
Um, I think Ecuador's consent solicitation back in March was really important because effectively what, what Ecuador requested very quickly is, can you give me, I think it was like an eight month standstill, not even, it was like March through August. Can you give me a standstill of a few months so that I can restructure with bondholders, seek more relief and avoid a technical default? And when they sent out that consent solicitation, like they reached 98% threshold. Like every bondholder said, yes, we recognize with COVID that this is a shock. People are suffering, people are dying. We have to be part of the solution. And we want a framework that is reasonable, that, um, that is reasonable for your population, that is reasonable for society. So I think there, you know, I was surprised there was, you know, I think financial markets get vilified, but I thought that was a really important show of unity and cooperation that markets understand that, that it's bondholders recognize that this is a partnership and that this COVID shock was so intense that they had to provide relief. Now, I follow countries that access the Eurobond markets, so they're more middle-income countries as opposed to low-income countries. But I think the message is there where whether it's the IMF postponing the loans for Argentina or whether it's the IMF and all these other multilaterals providing all of these emergency funds, I think it's it's a cooperative effort to know that there needs to be some relief. But I think what's unresolved is going forward after you provide the initial liquidity relief during the worst of the COVID shock, these debt ratios now are much worse. And where does the burden sharing start and finish? I think, I think that's really, I mean, Mark, I think your question is relevant where it could be a moving target. We focus on liquidity relief, but does it also have to include solvency relief? Because when you start looking at what these countries will have to deliver a 5% of GDP in fiscal adjustment. I mean, that is, I don't, um, I'll have to rack my brain when the last time I saw a country adjust by 5% of GDP on the fiscal account, certainly over a two or three year period is very ambitious. Um, Ecuador has a really ambitious IMF program. Even if they get stable centrist policy management, is this realistic? Right. So I think that's going to be that's going to be the ongoing debate. I don't I don't have an answer. Um, it's a very controversial debate, but I think it's going to be another round of discussion about burden sharing. But I don't think there's going to be a free pass either. I don't think the bondholders, the burden sharing shifts only to bondholders. I think there's a lot of structural problems um, after the commodity shock where the states are too large. There's not enough investment. There's not enough, you know, we need labor reform, pension reform. Um, so it's going to take heavy lifting maybe on, on both sides. So it, 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 I think, I think it's, it's, an, it's an interesting question because you, you open up a debate that needs, that needs to start. So the DSS, DSSI is a starting point. We're all on board. Everybody agrees. We need liquidity relief. But um, there's, there's going to be more work ahead on both sides in terms of the controversy of burden sharing. Well, thank you so much. I hope we can have you back at some point where hopefully we can talk about the um, 
projections emerging from the end of the COVID pandemic and the, the renewal of economic growth after that. I fear um, we may have to wait a little while for that, but um, uh, I hope that, it, that I'm wrong about that and it happens pretty soon. Um, thank you uh, so much for, for coming to talk to us, Siobhan. Thank yes. you so much, thank Mark. You. It was a pleasure.